The following is a message by Dr. David Van Drunen from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. The text from which I will speak this morning is Zechariah 14, verses 20 and 21. Those are the last two verses of Zechariah. If you have trouble finding the minor prophets, just look for the place where the Old Testament turns into the New Testament and turn back about two pages, depending on your Bible. Zechariah 14, verses 20 and 21. Hear the word of God. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, I just want to say before I begin, this is not a sermon. Uh, I don't take chapel messages to be the same as the official proclamation of God's word in, on the Lord's Day. And I'm saying that because I, um, I want to speak just a little informally and with a little personal anecdote. And I don't encourage informality and personal anecdotes in sermons on the Lord's Day. So that's why I'm saying this. So Please don't take this, at least I don't intend this as a model in every respect for your preaching on the Lord's Day. Uh, With that, let me tell you a little personal anecdote. Uh, I received an email uh, last fall, fairly early last fall, from a friend of mine who said, you're not going to believe this, you've got to listen to this link. So I uh, went to the link and I discovered that... um, there was a certain president of a certain Christian college, the name of the person and the name of the institution to remain nameless, uh, who, and this college president had dedicated uh, his opening convocation address to the faculty, staff, and student body uh, to uh, refuting uh, the great errors in a recent book entitled Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms. Uh, and um, uh, part of the... Uh, uh, in part of this address, uh, he uh, defended the idea of Christian football and uh, concluded his uh, lecture by turning to the end of Zechariah. And in uh, speaking of the bells on the horses that are holy to the Lord and the pots that are just as holy as the bowls before the altar, uh, applied this to manure wagons used on farms and even the manure wagons he told the faculty and staff and students, are holy to the Lord as all, uh, as all things uh, in life. And uh, in a lot of ways, I found that fairly amusing and not the kind of thing I was going to uh, initiate a response to. But uh, for the first time in my life, having been instructed that I must speak on Haggai, Zechariah, or Malachi, and thinking, what, what ought I speak from one of these minor prophets I thought, well, why not take a look at the last couple of verses and figure out if perhaps 
um, these last two verses um, do indeed show the evils of some of that book, which he was refuting. Now, it's worth noting, as we look at these final verses of the book of Zechariah, just how startling and revolutionary the vision that's presented here would have been, we must imagine, to those who would hear this. In these closing verses, there is no longer a distinction between the holy and the common, between the holy and the unclean. Now, if you think about Israelite life under the Mosaic Covenant, especially the book of Leviticus, for example, the distinction between the holy and the unclean is absolutely essential for understanding how one is to live uh, before God. Uh, It is at the very center of how one is to conduct one's life and how one is to structure what one does. And the idea that the holy and the common would no longer exist uh, certainly must have been very startling, especially for those in a post-exilic context uh, in which now, having come back from exile but being under foreign oppression, foreign domination, there is all the more zeal uh, to think about how to distinguish Israel and and distinguish Israel's holy things uh, from the Gentiles and from their pagan things. But you see what is being said here uh, in these verses. There are these bells on the horses that say, holy to the Lord. These horses that are these instruments of warfare, These instruments for going out and fighting and uh, uh, being uh, trampling upon the blood of pagans. Well, this is not the sort of thing that you might think of as the realm of the holy. And yet, here these horses are inscribed uh, as being holy to the Lord. And then, these matter of the pots. The pots in the house of the Lord are made just the same as the bowls that are before the altar. Here's a further breaking down of those things that are most holy. Think of those bowls before the altar of the Lord equated with these bowls. And then, or I'm sorry, with these pots. And then, if that's not enough, verse 21, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah, every pot is holy to the Lord of hosts. I mean, this is about the most common thing you can imagine, right? These common instruments for cooking your food every day. And yet somehow these are just as holy as those instruments used in the worship of God in the temple. That's pretty remarkable. And of course, if we uh, read this in the uh, broader context of Zechariah 14, which of course we have to do, we read, for example, in verse 16, that the survivors of all the nations following this great battle that has been waged are coming, streaming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so it's not just that, you know, the the cooking pots become holy, but you have all of these, all these Gentiles who are flocking to Jerusalem, and yet instead of defiling the holy city, this is a glorious vision of, uh, of what is transpiring here on this last day. Well, the question does arise then, When and how is this all-pervasive holiness going to be attained? How is it realized? Well, one thing that is certainly important to remember 
is that this is apocalyptic literature. Like reading the book of Revelation, we will drive ourselves crazy if we try to read Zechariah 14 as a literal video camera account of a series of chronological events. We can't match up everything here with concrete uh, historical uh, events. This is something that is full of symbolism. And yet, as we read Zechariah 14, in the light of the analogy of faith, as we read it in the light of the rest of Scripture, especially New Testament revelation, we do gain considerable insight as to this marvelous and mysterious vision that Zechariah presents to us here. Now, one thing to note is that uh, many scholars uh, believe that uh, the Gospel of Mark structures its account of the triumphal entry uh, by using Zechariah 14. There are hints here in Zechariah 14 of the first coming of our Lord and his work in his earthly ministry. Just to mention a couple of things, you might note early in Zechariah 14 uh, that the Mount of Olives is mentioned here as, a, as, a, uh, as an important place in which these events of this last day transpire. Mark makes a special note to mention that the triumphal entry begins at the Mount of Olives. And you may note that in the very, the very last sentence of Zechariah 14, notes that there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts, now, there's, there's some question about that translation in that the, if you would read that Hebrew word, it sounds like the word for Canaanite. I think, there's, I think there's probably good reason just within Zechariah 14 itself to take that as traitor rather than Canaanite. But it is interesting that in Mark's account of the triumphal entry, what does Jesus do in the temple? But he drives out those who are buying and selling in the midst of uh, the temple, that is part of the purification of the temple that the Messiah brings. Well, we do seem to see a hint of the Messiah's coming, his first coming here in Zechariah 14, and yet, if we try to make the triumphal entry the full fulfillment of Zechariah 14, it doesn't really seem to work. Mark's account of the triumphal entry is almost oddly anticlimactic. Remember, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark and he arrives at the temple, what does he do? He just looks around and then he leaves. And if we're looking for some sort of dramatic event that looks like Zechariah 14 and eliminates the holy and the common and brings in this the Gentile hordes coming to Jerusalem to worship, it doesn't quite seem to happen in Mark chapter 14. There must be something more which is going on here. Jesus' first coming is important for understanding the fulfillment of Zechariah 14, but it is not enough. Well, as we look deeper in Zechariah 14, we note that one of the key things that is described here is a A great and coming day in which there will be a massive and decisive battle which is waged by the Lord and those on his side against uh, his enemies. And it is a battle which in many respects 
reminds us of that great battle of Armageddon described in certain places elsewhere in the scriptures, particularly we think of the book of Revelation. And as we think about the book of Revelation and what follows the account of the battle of Armageddon, that great battle of the last day, and we think of that beautiful account of the new heavens and new earth that is set before us in Revelation 21 and 22, we can't help but be struck about how many themes that we see there we also see here in Zechariah chapter 14. Think about some of them. In Zechariah 14, verses 6 and 7, we read that on that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but evening time. But at evening time there shall be light. It is a day in which the ordinary first creation structure of day and night, sun, moon, and stars in their courses, seems to come to an end. There is some new order of nature that is brought in. And of course, Revelation 21 makes a point of telling us that there's no more need for the sun. There's going to be perpetual day in this new heavens and new earth. The first order established at creation, renewed in the covenant with Noah, will be no more on that day. You might also note here in Zechariah 14, the very next verse from what I just read, verse 8, tells us that on that day, living water shall flow out of, from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Well, of course, Revelation 22 makes a point to tell us about the rivers of the waters of life that will flow in that new Jerusalem. Watering the tree of life, which will give its fruit when? In all seasons, summer or winter, it doesn't matter. The waters will flow and the fruit will grow. We might also note that Zechariah 14, particularly verses 17 through 19, tells us about the punishment, the curse that is going to come upon all those who do not flock to Jerusalem. The Gentile nations are going to come, but not all of them. Not all Gentiles will be united to God's people in this last day. Those who are excluded will be struck with a plague, with a curse. And of course, Revelation 22 makes a point to tell us that there will be those who are outside the gates of that great city. And they will be, in contrast to God's people inside, they will be not blessed, but they will be cursed. And then, as we reflect back upon these final two verses, which I read a few minutes ago. We can't help again but think of Revelation 21 and 22. For we know, as Revelation uh, 21 tells us, that that new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven will be a holy city. It is a holy city, such as that which is described here, A place that holiness is all-pervasive. And in fact, Revelation 21 goes on to tell us that there won't even be a temple in this city, which in a sense might initially make us think that there's some privation of holiness in the city because there's no temple. But in fact, just the opposite is true. There's no need for a temple because the Lamb is there. The Lamb fills the entire city. The entire city is a temple when holiness is all-pervasive. When God is present everywhere, 
all pervasively. There is no need for a special temple to distinguish the holy from the common or the unclean. And so, as we read Zechariah 14, in the light of the rest of the scriptures, the idea that Zechariah 14 describes a present reality that God has already brought in, or even more, a present reality that we might have some share of bringing in through our sanctifying or redeeming activities in this world, really doesn't seem to hold water. Zechariah 14 points us to a great, wonderful, and coming day of God's final victory over his enemies. A victory that has already been initially waged, a a battle that has already been initially waged, a victory which has been proleptically won in Christ's first coming, but awaits that final and decisive victory on the last day. At present, there is very little in this world that is actually holy, very little. But the New Testament is very clear about one thing that is holy here in this present world. And that is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 uses the same term, holy, to describe the church that Revelation 21 uses to describe the new Jerusalem. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you see, we, the covenant community, the body of Christ here and now, are those who already participate in the new creation. As Paul tells us in Galatians 6 and in 2 Corinthians 5, that we who are in Christ, we are indeed new creation. We, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, It is upon us that the ends of the ages have now come. And so, on further reflection, I do believe that Zechariah 14 really doesn't tell us about how to play football. I'm quite sure that it doesn't tell us about how to transport manure. But Zechariah 14 ought to tell us something about our longings and our desires here and now. It should create in us a longing for that great day of the Lord in which everything that is common, everything that is unclean, everything that does not belong in that everlasting holy city of the Lord will be once and for all destroyed. And Zechariah 14 should also create in us a wonderful appreciation for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ the body of Christ. We look at the church and we see so many imperfections, so many shortcomings, so much sin. And yet, despite all of that, the Lord is pleased to call his church holy, to use that same term by which he is pleased to describe the new Jerusalem described in Zechariah 14 and Revelation 21. In the church, we do get a glimpse of that coming day in which there will be no longer a distinction between that which is holy and that which is unclean. 
In the church, for example, we already get a glimpse of the nations flocking to be joined to God's people, where there is no more Jew or Gentile, where it doesn't matter if you are a Scythian or barbarian, slave or free. There is no longer a holy people or a common people within the walls of God's church, but we are all united to him, having been plucked from the nations in that great victory which our Lord is winning even now. And so, may we be filled with a desire for that coming day. May we, be, may we long for that coming holiness that will be all-pervasive. And may we rejoice that we have citizenship even now in that kingdom and in the fellowship and presence of God's people. May enjoy and celebrate that holiness even now. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we do thank you that we who are dead in our transgressions and sins, that we who are stiff-necked and hard-hearted rebels, we who revel in that which is unclean, in that which is unholy, that you have made us a holy people, a holy nation, a people belonging to you, that we may declare forth your praises in a way that is acceptable, pleasing, and honorable to you. O Lord, how we thank you for your church. Thank you that you have gathered us together from every nation, from every people, even from those nations that were considered unclean by your people of old. Father, we give honor to you. We give thanks to you. And we pray that as you build your church here and now, as you call us to be a worshiping community, a community of, of love and of service to you and to our neighbor, we pray, O oh Lord, that your holiness might shine forth and that you would create in us that longing for the coming day in which that new creation that is already at work in us will be fully manifest and everything that is unclean will be cast from your presence that we may serve you wholeheartedly with all that we are and all that inhabits your holy kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.